Chapter Fifteen of Garibaldi and the Making of Italy by George Macaulay Trevelyan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Return to Caprera. Simplici in andi is simply in parole. Ci della patria cavalier si sensi. Donna tutta alla patria in nulla vole. Marradi. Rhapsody Garibaldina. Simply in act and word, his country's knight. He gives his country all and nothing takes. That part of the enemy's force which had been in the neighborhood of the two national armies at the moment of their junction on October 26th retired in the afternoon towards Gaeta and effaced themselves behind the line of Garigiano. On the morning of the 27th, Victor Manuel rode from Tiano to Calvi in search of Garibaldi. Finding that he had returned to the south bank of the Volturno, the king pushed on alone with his staff in the same direction, crossed the rickety little bridge, and entered the Garibaldian lines at San Angelo. The volunteers came swarming out to welcome the unexpected visitor, with cries of devotion and enthusiasm, which showed how far a very little attention from the world would have gone to win the hearts of the main body of Garibaldini. Unfortunately, this surprise visit was the last effort which His Majesty was permitted to make, by way of showing personal gratitude to the rank and file of the volunteers. Since Garibaldi was absent, not knowing of the king's visit, Medici did the honors of the occasion, helped by Nino Bixio's lieutenants. Bixio himself was in hospital at Naples. At the crossing of the Volturno two days before, whence he was to have accompanied the dictator to meet the king, Nino had headed a hue and cry after a priest suspected of acting as a spy and riding furiously after the man to arrest him, had let his horse slip in a narrow lane, and fractured his leg against the wall. He lay, however, quite happy in the hospital at Naples, for his wife came out from Genoa to nurse him, and since the volunteer's part in the fighting was over, he was able to turn his mind to the docile family affections which shared dominion in his heart with the rage for his country's service. Victor Emmanuel, after having fraternized with Medici's men, had ridden close up to the walls of Capua at the greatest risk of being cut off by the enemy's outposts, recrossed the Volturno and returned to Tiano. His army was there divided into two, one part going towards the line of the Garigiano and Gaeta, and the other under General Della Roca coming south to besiege Capua. Della Roca had to negotiate a delicate situation with Garibaldi, Although the red shirts were no longer to be allowed to take part in the serious operations of the campaign, yet on October 28th their services were still required for yet a few days longer to help guard the lines for the royal siege batteries. Garibaldi, fearing that his men might be annoyed at receiving orders from Della Roca if they considered that a slight was being put upon themselves, or their chief not wholly placed in the whole of his army at the absolute disposal of the Piedmontese general, but was at pains to devise a plan whereby Della Roca's orders were conveyed to the red shirts through Sidori, as though they still came from Garibaldi himself. He strictly enjoined his staff to prevent the men from knowing that the orders did not in reality emanate from him. Shaking his supplanter warmly by the hand, he wished him luck and rode off to Caserta. Two days later, Della Roca, who had been deeply touched by Garibaldi's generous conduct, hearing that he was ill at Caserta, went there to pay him a visit. 
he found him in a little room over the guardhouse of the palace exactly above a large store of gunpowder i begged him writes della rocca to move immediately and smiling he promised to do so propped up with pillows he was wrapped in a military cloak a little cap on his head and a silk handkerchief knotted around his neck as i entered he held out his hand and seemed quite touched when i told him i had only come to ask how he was he was still more pleased when i told him how well i got on with his generals cosenz and sartori notable personages and most excellent men and how i regretted the enforced absence of bixio mine were no idle compliments i meant what i said and i saw that garibaldi was pleased that i appreciated his friends meanwhile della Roca's batteries were being scientifically erected by the engineers of the regular army in front of the garibaldian lines on november first at four in the afternoon all was ready and a red flag run upon the summit of monte tafata gave the signal for the bombardment the enemy replied and the duel lasted on through the night some of the houses in the town were set on fire and the capuans many of whom secretly hated the falling dynasty protested to the general of the garrison the necessity for instant surrender at dawn of november second the officers of the terrace of sant'angelo church eagerly turned their telescopes towards capua and saw the white flag hoisted on its walls the garrison of ten thousand men became prisoners of war and the fortress that had set a limit to garibaldi's career at length surrendered to the italian army while della rocca was taking capua fonti and cialdini were drawing the net around gaeta on october twenty ninth a reconnaissance against the enemy's strong position on the hills behind the mouth of Cargliano was pushed too far partly by the carelessness of the generals partly by the unwillingness of the bersaglieri to obey the orders to retreat the action cost the italian army over fifty men and showed that their opponents could still fight but a day or two later when the italian fleet opened fire on their flank and rear the bourbon forces abandoned the position on the gergiano and fell back towards the great fortress on november second the day of the fall of capua a successful action at mola de gaeta on the coast was placed by the italian army in a situation to besiege gaeta in form during the first ten days of november some seventeen thousand neapolitan soldiers closely pursued by victor manuel's troops escaped over the frontier into papal territory at terracina and were disarmed and interned among the alban hills by the papal authorities and the french garrisons of rome the remainder of the bourbon army that had not already disbanded or surrendered was now shut up in the citadel at messina in one or two small forts in sicily and the abruzzi or with the ex-king and queen in gaeta the siege of gaeta was protracted all the winter because napoleon the third kept the french fleet in those waters with orders to prevent the italian fleet from bombarding the fortress the siege operations had therefore to be conducted entirely from the land side and were not brought to a successful issue until february eighteen sixty one the long siege enabled maria sophia francis the second's young bavarian queen to display to europe from the battlements of the bombarded fortress a heroine's courage which illuminated with sunset glow the last vision of the inglorious dynasty which had known no rays at noontide 
napoleon's action in stopping the war at sea while allowing it to be carried to its conclusion on land had no permanent effect save to irritate italians and to efface from their minds all claims of gratitude for his recent compliance with regard to umbria and the marches it is difficult at first sight to assign a reason for interference at once so feeble and so exasperating the emperor's biographer unable as ever to understand his sympathy with italian freedom supposes that he wished to clear his personal honor by this tangible protest against victor manuel's piratical attack on the kingdom of naples such may be the feelings of a french clerical in the face of the liberation of italy but it is difficult to suppose that they were those of napoleon the third only two months after he had given his consent to cavour's invasion of the papal marches the secret agreement which he had made at chambury was that the north italian army should invade and traverse the papal territories so as to arrive at naples in time to stop garibaldi and absorb the revolution in making this arrangement napoleon did not imagine that victor emmanuel had undertaken to put down garibaldi merely in order to restore francis the second to the throne the emperor did not like the annexation of south italy by piedmont but he had agreed to it as the least of many possible evils therefore his motive in sending the french fleet to gaeta was probably not so much genuine indignation at the conduct of the king of italy as the perception that he must appear to be angry for the sake of the french clericals whose loyalty so essential to his throne he had strained almost to the breaking point on the eighth of october cavour had written to Farini the minister in attendance on victor emmanuel if garibaldi's army acclaims the king it must be treated well if we have to contend against the requirements and pedantries of the regular army do not give in reasons of state of the first importance demand firmness woe to us if we show ourselves ungrateful to those who have shed their blood for italy europe would condemn us in the country there would be a great reaction in favor of the garibaldini i have had a warm argument with fonti on this point he spoke of military requirements i replied that this was not spain and that here the army had to obey it was a great misfortune that cavour was unable to secure the fulfillment in spirit as well as in letter of his wise and benevolent intentions victor emmanuel who had hitherto been more enthusiastic for garibaldi than cavour himself fell at this critical moment under the influence of fonti and the military pendants garibaldi and his troops had welcomed the king and his army and had taken the place assigned them in the rear in a manner which no one had been able to criticize and which had elicited the gratitude and praise of della rocca the general most concerned there was therefore not the smallest provocation for the official insult to which the whole body of garibaldini were subjected on november sixth on that day they had been instructed that the king would come to review them at caserta the dictator was to present his generals and his favorite officers to their sovereign and the red shirts were to march past such a day might well have been a turning point in the life of the newborn nation old feuds instead of taking on fresh and more virulent forms would have been smoothed or healed the garibaldini assembled at caserta with feelings of loyalty and pride they were drawn up in front of the bourbon palace in their picturesque regiments good bad and indifferent 
Sicilian and Calabrian, Northerner and Tuscan. They waited till after the appointed hour, and then learnt that the king had determined not to come. No apology or explanation was sent, or has ever since been offered. Further to point the moral, Victor Manuel did not even write an order of the day, thanking the men who had won for him the crown of the two Sicilies. Still less would Fanti, the commander-in-chief, put his name to such a document. It was signed by Della Rocca. The man who suffered most from the consequences of this ungracious conduct was the man who had vainly striven to avert the folly. It was against Cavour that Garibaldi turned his wrath. His personal devotion to Victor Emmanuel stood the shock. He persuaded himself that these acts of petty meanness had been specially ordered by the minister at Turin, though in fact they had been suggested either directly by Fanti or indirectly by the atmosphere of jealousy natural to a regular army in the presence of volunteers. This jealousy, common to every professional service in the world, and aggravated at Naples by the fact that these volunteers had really won their laurels, Cavour was unable to control from his cabinet in Turin. Next spring, in the first session of the First Parliament of United Italy, Garibaldi's pent-up wrath boiled over in a misdirected and malicious attack on the statesman, who had been his guardian angel throughout the years of wonders. Garibaldi was sometimes unjust, but he seldom missed an occasion to be generous. And on the very afternoon of the thwarted review, he had a magnificent opportunity. General Cialdini arrived at Caserta, commissioned to obtain his promise to enter Naples on the following day in the same carriage with the king. It was very desirable that the dictator should appear at Victor Emmanuel's side, for if it became known that he had absented himself with a grievance, it was doubtful what sort of reception the royal party would obtain. There would indeed have been a fair case for him to refuse to enter Naples with the king, who had failed his appointment at the review. But he liked Cialdini well, and after some demur, and a good deal of strong language against Fante and Cavour, he finally consented to go. On November 7th, the first king of Italy entered his southern capital, with Garibaldi sitting beside him in the carriage. They were both out of temper, and it rained in torrents. But the Neapolitans were again in a state of frantic enthusiasm, which the rain could not damp, although it ruined the triumphal arches, and caused the rows of pasteboard allegorical figures to double up as if they had been shot. If the king had been permitted to use common courtesy to the Garibaldian army in the matter of the review, and had shown more imaginative sympathy with men perhaps over-insensitive, little complaint could justly have been made of the treatment accorded to their material interests. In this matter, Victor Emmanuel was firm to see the right thing done, saying, I cannot show less generosity than Garibaldi. It had been Cavour's original intention to divide the Garibaldini into three sections, the first and far the largest to be disbanded at once with a gratuity for each man, the second to constitute a separate volunteer division of the army under the title of Cacciatori della Alpi, the third to consist of a small number of officers to be given commissions in the regular army, but this plan was not carried out. It was decided not to constitute a permanent force of volunteers attached to the army, partly for fear of professional quarrels and political complications that might arise out of the existence of such a force, 
and partly because nearly all the genuine volunteers who had done the fighting were anxious to return at once to their families and to their work in life the privates therefore were sent back each to his home with a gratuity the hungarians alone who had no homes to which they could return were taken into the royal service and were engaged for many years in the inglorious but dangerous task of tracking down the reactionary brigands of molisi and abruzzi there remained the questions of the officers since cavour's scheme of a permanent volunteer force had been abandoned it was felt to be only just that a very large number of garibaldi's officers should be given posts in the regular army a military commission on which sir tori medici and cosenz had seats chose out the officers most fit to be admitted into the king's service it was a difficult task for there were six or seven thousand so-called officers of all sorts drawing garibaldi's pay in sicily and on the mainland in the first days of november about one officer to every seven privates half or more of these must have been absolutely unworthy of permanent commissions in the course of the next two years one thousand five hundred and eighty-four of the best men were picked out and admitted as officers to the regular army medici bixio cosenz and nine others were made generals these arrangements were regarded with intense indignation by garibaldi and his intimates at caprera who had expected that the volunteers would be kept in being as a permanent force to form a nucleus for the national levee in mass in the coming war for venice and rome but the settlement cannot in a fair view of all the circumstances be called either impolitic or unjust although there were many individual cases of harsh treatment of men who had deserved well of their country although victor manuel was now in full possession of naples the half-formed kingdom of italy was still in grave danger on october twenty second cavour had felt the certainty that austria will attack us every day that passed in safety added to the chances of peace and to the meagre possibilities of resistance in case of war but the emperors of austria and russia and the king of prussia had met in conference at warsaw an ill-omened gathering of the murderers on the tomb of their victim and europe looked on to see whether they would decide to slay italy as they had slain poland at this crisis the italian position was strengthened by the pronouncement of the british foreign minister in favor of the right of the italians to settle their own affairs lord john's famous dispatch was his own spontaneous act a personal proclamation of the principles of charles james fox the gospel by which russell's life had been inspired and guided england who had so often supported these principles and often opposed them was in one of her generous moods and applauded to the echo of her champion's defiance of a despotic europe the first sentence plunges in medius res it appears that the late proceedings of the king of sardinia have been strongly disapproved by several of the principal courts of europe after telling some home truths about the character of the papal and neapolitan governments lord john announces that her majesty's government must admit that the italians are the best judges of their own interests it is difficult he proceeds to believe after the astonishing events that we have seen that the pope and the king of the two sicilies possessed the love of their people therefore her majesty's government can see no sufficient ground for the severe censure with which austria france prussia and russia have visited the acts of the king of sardinia 
Her Majesty's government will turn their eyes rather to the gratifying prospect of a people building up the edifice of their liberties and consolidating the work of their independence. This dispatch, written on October 27th and made public in the early days of November, was greeted with ecstasies of joy by the Italian people. Cavour, who had recently been somewhat annoyed by Lord John's insistent warning that Italy must not go to war to liberate Venice, declared that he had now more than made amends. Lord John's dispatch has sometimes been depreciated as a mere blowing of trumpets over the fait accompli of knighted Italy, but such was not the view of the men who best understood Italy's needs. Hudson wrote to Russell that when Cavour first read it, he shouted, rubbed his hands, jumped up and down again, and began to think, and when he looked up, tears were standing in his eyes. Behind your dispatch he saw the Italy of his dreams, the Italy of his hopes, the Italy of his policy. Cavour himself wrote to thank Russell in the strongest language for the immense service he had rendered Italy, and his trusted agent, Villa Marina, said the dispatch was worth an army of one hundred thousand men. The feeling of Cavour's countrymen for Lord John Russell was one of the chief instruments of their liberation, was shown in many different ways during the remainder of his life. Once, in 1869, when he and his family were staying in a villa at San Remo, they found the ceiling of the principal room frescoed with portraits of four national heroes. The four turned out to be Mazzini, Garibaldi, Cavour, and to their surprise and delight, Lord John himself. Neither had the house been specially prepared for the reception. It has, of recent years, been somewhat the fashion to blame Lord John Russell for his failures, but never to praise him for his triumphs. Fashions in history come and go, more often the reflexive tendencies in the present than the result of new knowledge of the past. It is probable that very few British statesmen in the course of their lives did as much to reinvigorate and secure the institutions of our country as was done by Russell in 1830 to 1832, or won for her as much well-deserved gratitude and such enduring friendship abroad as was secured by his action in 1859 and 1860. On the Italian question, England secured peace with true honor, and has ever since, either in point of interest or of conscience, had reason to repent of her work. On the day of their entrance into Naples, and on the following day, Victor Manuel and Garibaldi held private colloquies. The outgoing director asked to be continued in power for another year as the king's lieutenant, and to have the grade of all his officers recognized. Such requests showed how utterly incapable Garibaldi was of understanding the difficulties of administrative and military reorganization that confronted the new state. On November 8th, the throne room in the palace was the scene of an imposing ceremony. The official presentation of the result of the plebiscite and the investure of Victor Manuel with the kingship of Sicily and Naples. The new monarch was seated on his throne. Garibaldi and his friends stood in one group, the courtiers and army officers in another, and a small cordiality was shown between them. But the act of annexation was duly signed by all parties, and Garibaldi, formally resigning the dictatorship, left the room a private citizen once more. His first act in that capacity was to publish a letter calling on all Italians to rally round Victor Manuel, and to be prepared to follow him next spring, a million strong, against Rome or Venice. 
by the side of the rey galatuomo he wrote every quarrel should disappear every rancor be dissipated garibaldi's public utterances during this period of strained relations were as loyal as if every demand he made had been conceded by the king before nightfall he sent missouri to tell the british admiral that he would leave for caprera early the next morning november ninth and would come aboard the hannibal to pay farewell visit before he quitted the bay he spent the night in the hotel d'angleterra in the chiaja talking with missouri mario canzio zasio and others of his intimate friends as during all these last days he was in a melancholy and gentle mood moving his followers to tears when he spoke of their parting on the morrow in spite of the brave words of the proclamation in which he thanked his soldiers and called on them to be ready against the next spring all felt in their hearts the presentment that their day of glory was at an end and so these men who had seized occasion by the forelock and had performed at the appointed moment the miracle never to be repeated sat up all night in the hotel and talked sadly of what they had done and left undone next morning before dawn they went down together to the port the city was still asleep and there was no one to witness the departure which had been kept secret from every one except the british admiral they took a boat rowed over to the hannibal and came up the side of the great three-decker between the darkness and the first twilight admiral mundy still in his cot was told that garibaldi was in the cabin and turned out with all haste to receive the strange man whom he had learnt to admire and love while still keeping the open eye of common sense on his single-minded fanaticism during a long talk in the cabin garibaldi invited mundy to be his guest at his cottage at caprera and spoke much of the beautiful harbour between the island and the main where nelson had once anchored for the protection of his fleet as they passed up from the cabin to the quarter-deck garibaldi saw the admiral's visiting book lying on the small table upon which six months before at palermo he and the bourbon generals had signed the armistice the source of such mighty consequences he sat down and wrote in the book in french g garibaldi owes to admiral mundi the most lively gratitude which will last all his life on account of sincere proofs of friendship with which he has been loaded in all kinds of circumstances as he went down the ship's side many of the officers and crew of the hannibal were deeply moved and the expressions which some of them afterwards used about the look of intense love upon his face testify to the unique effect of his presence upon men trained in no sentimental school of thought or character from the hannibal he wrote to the washington the streamer that was to take him home on her deck he parted from canzio missouri mario and his other friends who returned to the quay his last words to them were to meet again at rome only his son minotti and one or two persons of less importance sailed with him to the island he returned thither as poor a man as he had left it in the spring in the last two days victor manuel had offered him an estate for minotti the title of king's aide-de-camp for his younger son a dowry for his daughter a royal castle and a steamer for himself but he had refused them all his secretary basso had borrowed a few hundred francs of paper money from a friend for necessary expenses he himself had stowed on board the washington a bag of seed corn for his farm with these spoils the steamer almost unobserved left port at break of day 
he was soon back at his old daily occupation of man's primitive struggle with nature at which but for the call of a great epic and a great cause he would so readily have spent his whole life again the dawn and the twilight on the straits of bonifacio saw him at work among the granite boulders industriously putting seed into the scrapings of earth which he called his fields sheltering a few sad vines from the sweeping winds of the straits calling up his cows by name from their pasturage among the wild odorous brushwood and seeking the strayed goats on the precipice top under these conditions the melancholy of his last days on the mainland soon left him when a few weeks later a visitor came on business from genoa he found garibaldi robust in health and radiant with a calm and serene joy for when once he had been left alone again with his mother earth between rock and sea and sky no disappointment could prevent him from feeling in his heart the truth that he had done a mighty labor and taken his share in a task which the years would soon complete and the long generations ratify the making of italy End of chapter 15